All right, good evening, everyone. I want to say thank you to Don and the elders for allowing um, my wife and I and my family to have a little a little time this month, um, you know, which means on Wednesday evenings, we've been a little bit back and forth. We had a little bit of Ezekiel, and then we had a little bit of the promises with Don, and then a little bit of Ezekiel, and then more promises with Don, and um, but... Now we turn our attention back to Ezekiel, where we have spent a good bit of this summer and spring uh, attempting to get our heads around uh, this unique period in Israel's life and existence, where along with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, thousands of Israelites were captive in Babylon. Daniel was working there in the capital. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were appointed to various appointments within the the higher-ups in the Babylonian Empire. But Ezekiel, along with many others, uh, were they found themselves um, sort of like Israel found themselves in Egypt before Moses in that they were on the outskirts, on the fringes of society. You know, our heroes, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there in, in the upper echelons, many of these captives were in the outskirts of society. They were neglected, they were ignored, they were not important, they were not appointed to high points, high official posts and things of that nature. And and so as we ex- examine Ezekiel, we're, we're attempting to, to overlay these parts of the Bible and the history of God's people, right? To see them, they're happening concurrently. And so while Daniel's over here praying with his window open and, and you know, sleeping with lions, Ezekiel is over here preaching to the people on the outskirts of the city and the empire. Does that make sense? So we've spent a good bit of our time here in Ezekiel with the prophet uh, attempting to, to get the attention of the people with his preaching and with his theatrics, almost wanting to grab them by the collar and shake them into uh, an awareness, sort of wake them up from a stupor. They thought the Lord would swoop down and rescue them out of this bondage. They thought Egypt would come to their aid. Meanwhile, Ezekiel is laying on his side saying, God put you here. He's not going to rescue you from here. What are you? Right? They weren't connecting the dots. And so the last time we met and talked about this wonderful uh, but complex prophecy, we studied chapter 33 together. Chapter 33 comes as, as Jerusalem falls. Twelve years into Ezekiel's captivity, seven years into Ezekiel's preaching ministry, the, the worst nightmare for the people had come to pass. Jerusalem wasn't just conquered. That had happened twice already. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. The heart of their cultural identity and their homeland was laid waste. And in chapter 33, 
a survivor made the 600 plus mile journey from Jerusalem to Babylon and, and he found Ezekiel and he found the people there and he gave report. The city is leveled. The temple ransacked and their hearts broke and melted. All hope was gone. And it's almost as if now, now that, that, that this has happened, almost now that they're broken, just shattered, now the Lord can bring this like cool message of the gospel, of the good news of his love and his promise of restoration beginning in chapter 33. Does that make sense? We find that there's an interesting parallel between what God is, is speaking through Ezekiel to these people who were hoping in other things, who finally were broken, who can then hear the good news. There's an interesting parallel, of course, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said, unless you come like a child, with childlike faith, you won't enter the kingdom. We cannot stand on our two feet and puff out our chests and, and receive the gospel. What, what begins with T in tulip, the five points of Calvinism, is essentially the starting point of the gospel. It's total depravity, meaning brokenness. What does the psalm say? It's the contrite heart. The Lord will not reject. It's brokenness. It's a recognition of hopelessness and helplessness. And so the story sort of shows us that until the individual, until the people are there, they cannot hear, they cannot drink from the cool waters of God's promise of restoration. And so that's sort of the progression that we've been through. And so that was what we saw last time, two weeks ago, chapter 33, all about the gospel, the heart of God to redeem sinful man. But near the end of chapter 33, this reality check is spoken to Ezekiel in verse 32. Here's the cool waters of the gospel. But Ezekiel, verse 32, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. What does it mean? What, what's that? Well, they'll hear what you say, but they won't do it. However, when this comes, and come it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. A tough assignment, preach. They will hear you, but they won't believe, they won't repent, they won't confess. But that's an interesting promise that comes there in verse 33, right? They'll hear you, but they won't respond. However, when all of this comes to pass, including their hearing of the gospel and their hard-hearted response, 
when Jerusalem falls, when they aren't rescued, when they are stranded in captivity with no hope, when this comes and it will come, then they will know a prophet has been among them all along. Friends, what does it mean that they will then know that a prophet has been among them? When everything is crumbled and their hopes are dashed and that, that ragged, bloodied, beaten, one individual who escaped the battle in Jerusalem shows up on the doorstep and announces the city is in ruins and the temple is ransacked. When this happens, and happen it will, then they'll know that a prophet has been among them. What does it mean? What is that? The best answer is uh, a series of phrases. It's realization. Then they will know a prophet has been among them. Realization or revelation. Then what has been hidden from them will be uncovered. That's what revelation means, uncover. Sudden, deep, psychological, emotional, spiritual illumination like the light was flicked on and they can see clearly where before it was but darkness. Then they will know a prophet has been among them. Then their eyes will be opened. What does that mean? Well, it means they would realize suddenly some negative things and some positive things. Follow me briefly, and then we've, we're going to get into the text. They would realize negatively, number one, they were wrong about Ezekiel. They assumed him to be a fraud, to be the false prophet, while believing the lies of actual false prophets. They would realize they were wrong about Ezekiel all this time, seven years Secondly, they will realize that they were wrong in their response to his message. He told them they were guilty. They rejected it. He told them it was their sin that landed them in captivity. They rejected it. He told them it was God's doing that Babylon conquered Israel and their capital. They rejected it. They will realize we were wrong in our response to his message. Thirdly, they will realize that they believed for many years in a deception. They believed a lie. They will know that a prophet has been among them. It is said that it's easier to be deceived than to be convinced that you've been deceived. And when you look at our world, that statement rings true, doesn't it? I was just speaking with Daniel yesterday as we were uh, reading through systematic theology. We talked about something and we acknowledged together the people on our planet are willing to believe anything so long as it's not the Bible. They'll believe utter nonsense and you will not be able to convince them that they are believing something that is utter nonsense. Easier to be deceived than to be convinced that you've been deceived. 
And so all of this, then they will know a prophet has been among them. That's what they'll realize. But then positively, they will realize they must confess and repent based on this revelation. My eyes are opened. What do I do now? Stand still? No, I... Any other response is tantamount to thumbing your nose at logic and reason and rationality. Anything short of confession and begging for forgiveness is the rejection of reality itself, for reality has proven itself by this new revelation. A prophet has been among us. He was right all along. Anything less than a turn, an about face, from your current direction is to reject reality. The logical man aligns himself with reality because the alternative is to knowingly indulge delusion. And this choice can only sustain itself for so long. Eventually, reality wins every time. Positively, they will also come to realize that their eyes have been opened. Oh, my eyes were closed, now they're opened. This is an act of mercy. If God reveals the error of our ways, instead of simply snapping his fingers and we cease to exist in judgment, then that is mercy. To be shown the error of your ways is a in a manner that affords the opportunity to confess and repent and possibly be forgiven is most merciful indeed. It's, um, it's one of those questions that people often ask. You know, God told Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And yet they lived Many days after that, they were banished from the garden and they had a whole bunch of kids. In fact, they lived some 800 odd years and had all kinds of babies and I thought the day they eat of the tree, they would die. And I love R.C. Sproul's response to this. He says, while it is within God's right to execute that judgment immediately, it is also within his right to stay that judgment as an act of mercy. And is it not true, friends, that for you and I, we lived, we lived moments, we lived days, we lived perhaps years of our lives in, if not outright rejection, functional rejection of God and his grace. You know what I mean? Functional rejection. And God, in his justice, had the right to you're done. You, 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 you trample on my grace, you're done. And yet God in his mercy stays his hand of judgment and we're given the opportunity to have our eyes opened and confess and turn from our sin. How do we respond in that moment except to go, wow, what a merciful act to open my eyes to help me so that I would see the error of my ways. So that would be one of the realizations. Then they will know a prophet has been among them. Man, that's an act of mercy. Thirdly, if then God has opened their eyes and given them the chance to repent, extended this great mercy, he himself must be a God of mercy. He is merciful. 
It's not just that I'm experiencing a, a moment of mercy. I'm receiving a moment of mercy from a God who is merciful. Just a few chapters ago, they were accusing God of being unjust in his oversight of his people, being an unjust and unfair overseer of his creation. And in doing so, they maligned his character. But now, they realize a prophet has been among them. They see more than his act of mercy. They see his character is mercy. Fourthly, positively, their eyes are opened on the heels then of this progression, right? It's a progression. Ezekiel was right. Our response to his message was wrong, right? On the heels of this progression that we just walked through together, deep joy and gratitude would overcome them. I mean, wouldn't it? A sense of unspeakable gratitude would define them. For even while they maligned God, rejected his prophet, and looked for some other salvation, his patience stayed his hand of judgment. He didn't have to do that. He would have been justified in wiping them off the face of the earth. Who then can describe with human speech the overwhelming plethora of goodness and kindness, love, patience, compassion, mercy, and grace that are found in this God? There aren't words. This is why Paul, writing to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What God offered to the captives in Babylon is an inexpressible mercy. And what he offers to us in the new covenant of grace Do you have a superlative that's adequate? (laughs) Is it just good? Or is, is it great? Is it fantastic? Wonderful? Awesome? Excellent? I mean, is there a word good enough? It is, in Paul's words, inexpressible. Well, finally, what would come next naturally for the one whose eyes are opened? Total, sacrificial, uncompromising commitment. I mean, is, is anything else a reasonable response to such an overwhelming revelation to his mercy? And that's what we saw. Those who returned from Babylon, they established the sects and the, uh, the groups, the teachers that would go on to insist upon absolute, wholehearted, complete devotion. They would become so obsessed with wholehearted and complete devotion that those same groups would then crucify Jesus. But they were committed. They were just blind. Well, on the heels then, as we continue to build on this, God's revealing of his character, his vindicating of his prophet, chapter 34 begins. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. 
prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, notice who the target audience is. Thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? Been feeding yourselves. You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them, so they are scattered. Interesting. So, as a result of the previous description, they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, which is kind of certain, right? (laughs) Surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. That's, this is a big wind up, isn't it? Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. It's a big wind-up for what feels like a small statement, no? But is there a more terrifying thing than to have the God of all creation to be against you? That's a battle you're not going to win. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. Interesting, wolf in sheep's clothing. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Well, that brings us to the first thing we'll consider tonight. That is the good shepherd and his sheep. If you're taking notes, number one. The good shepherd and his sheep. Who are the shepherds? They are the priests, right? They are the priests of Israel. They were to impose God's good wisdom, oversee God's people for their safety and their security. They were to teach and remind the people of God's law. They were to also mediate on behalf of Israel, to bring Israel's prayers before the Lord in incense, to offer sacrifice for Israel's sin at the altar, but they abused their position of authority. They did not feed the people of God. They starved them of spiritual food and fattened themselves in the process. They were derelict in their duty. And God says, because you spiritual leaders starved my sheep, verse five, so they were scattered. Why did Assyria invade Israel? Why did Babylon invade 
southern tribes of Judah. The people were wrecked with idolatry and wickedness and rampant rejection and ignorance of God's law and his word. They failed to keep the, the Sabbath year observance. And God says, and whose fault is that? Is it the people? Or is it the shepherds who I charged to teach them? Just as the old covenant people of Israel had priests, the new covenant church has elders and pastors. And God does not take dereliction of duty lightly. Dr. Herschel York says the church can never be more faithful than the preaching that fashions and forms its thinking and practice. The church can never be more faithful than the preaching that fashions and forms its thinking and practice. Sounds a lot like Ezekiel 34 verse five. And just as the priests abuse their positions, so too there are many who stand in pulpits like this one who abuse their positions to the harm of the people of God and to the fattening and benefit of themselves. Dr. Herschel York continues, too often a diminished man with a moderate sense of calling is preaching a weakened word and a truncated gospel to an unloved congregation he barely knows from a pulpit he regards as a temporary post until he can convince another search committee to let him do the same thing somewhere else for more money. That's a, that's a sad reality. God does not smile on the overseer who is derelict in his duty and he will hold them to account. The people have been rejecting the word of God delivered through his prophet and who does God blame? The shepherds. The masses receive God's mercy. The teachers, the shepherds, receive his ire. No wonder Jesus said in Matthew 23, woe to you, shepherds, essentially. Pharisees, teachers of the law, priests, or when he looked on the masses gathered to, to him in Matthew chapter nine, he had compassion on them because they were, quote, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And yet to the woman caught in adultery, neither do I condemn you in my paraphrase, now that your eyes have been opened, now that you have seen and received mercy, go and sin no more. See, the masses receive God's mercy and the teachers receive his ire. The condemnation of these shepherds tells us something about what God expects of those he calls and privileges to oversee his flock. Acts 20, verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. You catch that? You didn't make yourself an overseer. It's not because of your education or your intellect or your commitment or your sacrificial decision. The Holy Spirit has made you an overseer. To do what? To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Note, you didn't obtain them with your own blood, and even if you do bleed for them, your blood doesn't purchase them. It's sinful and tarnished. 
It's passages like this that make it hard to find men to join the elder board. (laughs) Well, moving on from the the prophecy that comes strongly and sternly against the shepherds, note in the next section these New Testament allusions to the church, the elders, the spirit, and the new covenant. I want to read 11 through 23. It's a lot of reading tonight, and I hope we get through all of it because it's, um, it's quite beautiful. My notes are brief, and the reading is expansive. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Hmm. Interesting, right? I mean, does anyone else's mind immediately go to the incarnation of the Christ? As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is, what, among his sheep that have been scattered, he wrapped himself in flesh. So I, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Clouds and thick darkness? You mean like at the cross? And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. Interesting, the church is called the church. What does the word church mean? It's the Greek word ekklesia. It means called out ones. I will what? Bring them out from the peoples. And he'll do what? I will feed them on the mountains. What did Jesus say? I am the vine and you are the branch. Verse 14, I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself, verse 15, will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. See, this is why so many of the allusions to leadership in the church are about stewardship and service, not lordship. Your elders are not your lords. Your elders are servants, protectors, overseers, and stewards. We all serve the same shepherd We all listen to his voice. Don't put too much stock in mine or Don's, Stan's or Jeff's or Doug's. We can't feed you. I myself, verse 15, will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. What did Jesus say? I came to seek and save the lost. Yeah. And I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. Isn't this what Jesus did? And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. This is God saying, I can see through the Christian facade. 
Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of the pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. I can see who's been abusing my church and I will judge between them. Because you push with side and shoulder and thrust all the weak with your horns. This is the imagery of, you know, uh, pasture grazing animals thinking only of themselves. You've done this till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Who is David? He is the anointed one. What does the word anointed one mean? It means Messiah. What does the word Christ mean? Anointed one, Messiah. That's the implication. And he shall feed them. What did Jesus say? This is my what? Body? Broken? Take it. Eat it. He will feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. It's wonderful, isn't it? Finally, in this last section, there's a list of covenant blessings called the covenant of peace. And if you can, if you'd like, you can make a little note. If you're one to write in your Bible, you can make a little note out beside this last section, 25 through 31. You can write Leviticus 26, 1 through 13. Here is a list of covenant blessings with what seems to be a new deal, a new covenant. There was the Mosaic covenant, and now there is, verse 25, a covenant of peace. In Leviticus 26, there is the Mosaic Covenant. It comes along with blessings and curses. The covenant of peace has only blessings. Let's read it. I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing and I will send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing. Verse 27, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase and they shall be secure in the land and they shall know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslaved them. What did Paul say? You are no longer slaves of sin but slaves to righteousness. 28, they shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations, so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land, and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them. What does Revelation say? Behold, the people of God dwell with me and I dwell with them. It's like the great climax. 
They will know I am their God with them and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God, and you are my sheep, the human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? There's a reason why the covenant of peace has only blessings and blessings and blessings as opposed to blessings and curses. These are the blessings of the new covenant where man's failure to keep the covenant is impossible because it was kept by Jesus on our behalf. Thus we are in Christ. He keeps the covenant and he keeps us, as Isaiah says, in perfect peace. You see, in the Mosaic covenant, the people could violate the terms of the agreement and nullify the blessings and incur the curses. But in the new covenant of peace, Jesus kept it to the end on our behalf. And by, as the scriptures say, hiding ourselves in him, we hide ourselves from the even possibility of incurring the curses. In the covenant of peace, there is only blessing. All of this, after chapter 33, verse 33, where they finally realize a prophet has been among them. A great realization, revelation, spiritual illumination. All of this new covenant of peace with blessings but not curses because Jesus has kept it on your behalf. All of this comes after a great opening of the eyes. Does that sound like anything in the New Testament? A great and, and dramatic opening of the eyes? Anybody? Acts chapter 2? Pentecost? Right? <laughs> yes. Sure, Daniel, uh, Dylan, but no, it's, it's the day of Pentecost. It's the giving of the Spirit and the mass opening of eyes. They realized in Acts 2, <gasps> the prophet was right. <gasps> A prophet has been among us. <gasps> Our response to his teaching was wrong. <gasps> We thought him to be a false prophet, but he was the real prophet. We believed false prophets, but he was the real McCoy. Do you see the parallels, friends? And the covenant of peace is initiated by a great awakening. And on one day, of course, we know the story. 3,000 were saved. See, here in the Old Testament, we find the context for what Jesus did and what he accomplished. These Old Testament texts give foundation, they give girth to the New Testament accounts. There is no appreciation for the cross of Christ without the wonder of that much of our Bible. <laughs> right? 
Thanks be to God for these challenging chapters because they illuminate what was accomplished in the person and work of Christ. Well, my intention was to get through um, uh, uh, two more chapters tonight. (laughs) And uh, try as I might. So, um, chapter 34, you've got the, the, the good shepherd and his sheep. Chapters 35 and 36, I summarized as in this one phrase, if you want to jot it down, it's um, from desolation, uh, the desolation and restoration. Chapter 35 speaks of the, the desolation of Edom. That is the descendants of Esau. And then 36 enumerates the restoration of Israel, meaning restoring them to the land. And these two chapters are meant to contrast each other. But the key takeaways would be found here. In chapter 36, we see this. Um, this address to the people of God. Verse two, thus says the Lord God, because the enemy has said of you, aha, and the ancient heights have become our possession. Therefore prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, precisely because they made you desolate and crushed you from all sides so that you became a possession of the rest of the nations and you became the talk of evil, gossip or talk and evil gossip of the people therefore mountains of Israel hear the word of the Lord God thus says the Lord God to the mountains and the hills the ravines and the valleys the desolate wastes and the deserted cities which have become a prey and a derision to the rest of the nations around therefore thus says the Lord God surely I have spoken in my hot jealousy against the rest of the nations and against Edom who gave my land to themselves as a possession with wholehearted joy and utter contempt that they may make its pasture lands a prey Just understand, friends, what's going on here. When Israel was removed because of God's judgment, his punishment of his children, neighboring peoples like Edom celebrated, right? Remember, like the cities of Tyre and Sidon, they celebrated. They said, aha. No, Esau, his descendants, incurred God's curses and And yet, God promises to restore them. So that's what's being described here. Therefore, verse 7, thus says the Lord God, I swear that the nations that are all around you, you shall themselves suffer reproach. And so God says those who celebrate at the downfall of my people will incur the curses of Genesis uh, 22. I think it's Genesis 22. Skipping around on my notes here, trying to wrap this up. 27, excuse me, Genesis 27. That's the promise where, may those who curse you be cursed and those who bless you be blessed. Verse eight, but you, O mountains of Israel, shall shoot forth your branches and yield your fruit to my people Israel. For they will soon come home. 
So a desolated land, a desolate land will begin to bear fruit. Why? Because he's going to bring them home. For behold, I am for you and I will turn to you and you shall be tilled and sown. He's speaking to the land, right? And I will multiply people on you, the whole house of Israel, all of it. The cities shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt. So what is God saying? He's saying, I'm going to prepare this land ahead of you to restore you. What is that if not the allusion to what Jesus said? If I go, I go and prepare a place for you. He is even now preparing a place to bring his church home. And I will multiply you, verse 10, the whole house of Israel, all of it, the cities shall be inhabited and the waste places rebuilt and I will multiply you on uh, man and beast and they shall multiply and be fruitful and I will cause you to be inhabited as in your former times and will do more good to you than ever before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Now, why will God do this? Is it because the people are good? Verse 17, Son of man, when the whole house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity, so I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, verse 19, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and deeds. I judged them. So Israel deserved what they got. So why? Why will God restore them? Verse 21, I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came verse 22 therefore say to the house of Israel thus says the Lord God look it is not for your sake O house of Israel that I'm about to act but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them and the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the Lord God when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. And he goes on from there in this wonderful series of promises. Why does God restore his people? Is it because they were good? Is it because they deserved it? Or is it because he promised, he promised to restore and to renew and of course, the big question comes, how does God intend to do this? And the closing verses of Ezekiel 36 answer it. He says, I'll give him a new heart, a fresh start from the very core. Nothing else will do but to start over from the very, very beginning. And that's what he does for us in Christ. He doesn't just fix us, he recreates us. And that's why Jesus says, Unless you are born again, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Unless God recreates you and starts you over from the very core of your being, there is no hope for you. Why? Because we don't deserve it. But because God has promised to do it, he will do it. What a great gift. 
Well, next week we'll explore uh, this continuation of this metaphor of God bringing the dead things back to life with chapter 37 and the valley of dry bones. For now, let's pray and thank the Lord. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word and all that you have shown to us. Thank you for these chapters uh, buried deep in the Old, Old Testament scriptures uh, that just sing, in essence, they sing of your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the chance to just consider them and thank you uh, for your grace together tonight. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen.